Just to say a few general philosophical things to begin with uh, about why beauty matters. We, we live in a world in which uh, utilitarian values are not just triumphant, but for many people the only values that there are, that uh, there seems to be uh, no, no sense that things can have a value which is not a form of use. And this means that all of us are engaged all the time in what some philosophers call instrumental reasoning. Whenever we're asked to justify something, we uh, try and find a purpose for it. We say that, um, you know, uh, justify, for instance, the shape of this room. Uh, you know, you justify it in terms of its purpose, uh, at, at, uh, which is to gather people together to listen to a lecture. And uh, if it's not very efficient at that, then the room has not actually achieved what it set out to achieve. And in all our uh, activities, we, we're familiar with, with this kind of reasoning. But the question is, uh, um, what other kinds of reasoning are there, or is, it, or is that the only kind? Well, we know perfectly well uh, that it can't be the only kind, it, uh, because if, things, if something is a means to an end, there has to be an end that it's a means to. And that, too, needs a justification. Uh, so we do reason with each other, probably uh, rather insecurely, but nevertheless we do reason about the ends of our activity, what our goals are, and, and whether we should be pursuing the goals that we pursue. Uh, and it, this is especially true in these activities like building, building a, a, a room like this, or setting out on a career and so on, in which there is a long-term project involved, uh, and an end point that you can't very clearly envisage. Um, you know, when you set out to, to, to build something, you can't clearly envisage the end point just by, by, uh, from, a, from a, a ground plan or whatever. You need some conception of not just how, what it will look like, but what it would be like to live with it. Uh, and only if you know what it's like to live with it uh, will you be justified in building it. There is a simple example of, of, of a, an activity in which aesthetic reasoning is fundamental. One reason why modern architecture is such a failure is that people don't do this. They don't try and envisage what it's like to live with the product of their building, only what, what, it, uh, what its capacity is for the number of people assigned to it and so on. And to, but reasoning about what it's like to live with something means bringing the end of your activity forward into the present so that you sense uh, its being, as it were, with you in the moment where you are. And that is one of the, one of the roles of beauty in our life and of aesthetic judgment to do that. Now, uh, in another area, of course, we, we argue about about our ends from a religious point of view. We, th we, uh, we know, that, um, uh, you know that people have this conception of the, uh, of the meaning of life as lying in some way beyond life, uh, either in the transcendental or in the, the afterlife or whatever, and that this meaning is sometimes revealed in the present moment, moments which people are apt to describe as sacred, the moment of, of liturgy and worship the, the moment of revelation, reading a, a sacred text and so on, and perhaps being blessed with that experience that the prayer book and St. Paul describe as the peace that passeth understanding. 
Well, that's a very uh, a powerful emotion and powerful experience if you can obtain it. But, of course, we live in a world where not everybody does obtain it or even seek for it. Uh, and increasingly the surrounding culture either ignores that sort of thing or denigrates it. Uh, so it's very difficult to explain to people who are immersed in the secular culture today exactly how you would think about justifying the ends of existence and not just the means. Um, uh, we need some other, some other notion of the real presence, the real presence in our life of the meaning of things if we are able to, if we're going to be able to, dis to justify to others who are sceptical exactly what it is that we want them to do. And I think this is our situation today. Here is a picture, um, a, a, a landscape by Renoir. There's no particular reason for me to have chosen this landscape. Uh, and all landscapes uh, presented on PowerPoint uh, are hopeless anyway, because <laughs> um, I don't know how big that is up there, but anyway, it's, it, as, you, as you know, it's, it's backlit and, uh, and uh, it doesn't contain the texture of the paint uh, uh, and certainly not that of the canvas. Still, you see in that a, a particular artist's attempt not just to present a little bit of, uh, of uh, La Douce France, which everybody loves, but also to make you love it too. Uh, and say, so, you know, whatever, whatever goes on in that landscape, it's imbued with a sense of, of peace and order uh, and takes from the surrounding colours the vitality that makes life meaningful. But um, uh, Renoir, like other uh, Impressionists, uh, painted a world to which we belong. Uh, and belonging is an all-important uh, aspect of human experience. Not everybody has it. Uh, and, of course, um, our jails are full of the people who don't. But uh, most people in this room, I imagine, got here without criminal offences uh, and um, feel that they do instinctively belong in the world and are, are in the business of trying to make that belonging more rooted, more, uh, more permanent and more wound together with their coexistence, with their fellows. And that, of course, is part of what education is about. Uh, and uh, that's what you see, of course, in that uh, beautiful landscape by Renoir, a, paint, a painting of ordinary trees and uh, fruit trees and ordinary, uh, an ordinary mountain in the distance and so on, but uh, painting it all as part of a world to which we belong. Uh, and for him, for Renoir and for his contemporaries, it, it is a post-religious world. Uh, for, for they were uh, very much people of their time who were sceptical about religion uh, and um, in any case regarded it as their duty as painters to show that it is this world, not the next, that matters. It's quite hard to, pa to paint the next world, as, as you can imagine. Uh, it has been done in words by, by Dante uh, and a few painters have tried to follow him, but for the most part it has been a failure. But. Uh, uh, Nevertheless, our world is not that bad. Uh, it is imbued with its own tranquillity, uh, and that tranquillity can reside in, the per in perception itself. That's what Renoir is telling us. He said, look, he's saying, stop, stand still, look. Uh, and uh, in that perception, you will see that this thing in front of you has a meaning all of its own, a meaning which justifies you being in it uh, and reminds you that you belong to it. 
So there's a moment of, le of standing still that we all can achieve uh, and of letting the, the otherness of the world dawn on us, uh, its sense of being something other than me, not just imagined by me, but there in front of me and including me nevertheless. Uh, uh, when painters do this, the pain painters of modern life, um, as Baudelaire called them, uh, they don't uh, behave as photographers behave. And this is something which is very difficult to explain to people uh, these days, because everybody goes around with this criminal object in their pockets, uh, um, immortalising the ephemera of their existence, uh, and uh, uh, as a result, desecrating it with their own trivial perceptions. Uh, Renoir wasn't doing anything like that at all. He wasn't pointing a camera at this landscape. Maybe the landscape didn't entirely look like that. He was trying to extract from it what it means, and what it means not just uh, um, from the perceptual point of view, but also spiritually. Now, we, however, live at, at a time where, as we know, there is much ugliness around us and much desecration. Uh, in, in many ways, a deliberate making ugly of things. Uh, or a carelessness as to whether things should be ugly or, or, or beautiful. Uh, and many things that we regard as beautiful, we discover to be desecrated, not just um, by the way we treat them, uh, but, but also by the works of art which are supposed to celebrate them. Uh, and um, we know this, obviously, uh, from our experience of the human form. The human form is all important to us because it's the primary locus of meaning. It's the thing that means most to us in the world. The human face and the human body come before us uh, uh, imbued with the life of the spirit. But we can also, as we know, desecrate them as they are desecrated by pornography and, thi uh, and such things which turn, uh, to put it in a technical way, it, it turns the subject into an object. Uh, and being turned into an object is essentially to lose one's spiritual value. Now, uh, part of what uh, lies behind this is, I, I think, a growing obsession with power. Um, power is the, the great commodity that uh, is, uh, as it were, transferred from person to person in the world that we're creating. Uh, and many people would say, look, here, here is old Scruton up in front of an audience uh, enjoying his power. You are transferring to me that power, the power uh, to hold your attention uh, and to uh, uh, infect you with my reactionary attitudes. <laughs> uh, and this, this power is something which I have not yet justified to you. Uh, and many people, uh, many scholars influenced by people like Foucault will say that I couldn't justify it. The institution is structured by domination and I'm enjoying that domination and triumphing over you, the uh, victims uh, who are sitting before me. Now you don't actually believe that because you know that you're uh, sitting there willingly, uh, but nevertheless you can re-describe the whole of the world in that way. You could take the most innocent thing, you know, the love of a mother for a child or a child for the mother, you know, there's power in that too. If there weren't, the mother couldn't protect the child. And yet that, that's, it's not the power aspect of it that is important. Uh, it's the love aspect. But all, all our loves create powers. Uh, and um, the, in all the things that matter to us most, uh, there is that element of power. Uh, it, um, the tranquility that um, 
that uh, Renoir is trying to put across to us in that painting. You know, uh, uh, the, many of the literary and, uh, and artistic critics today would ask the question, what does this tranquility conceal? Who is using it? Who is gaining? Who is losing? And you can imagine the text um, in modern language review uh, which will analyse that painting uh, and persuade you or try to persuade you that it is there as part of the, uh, uh, of the hegemony of the bourgeois class representing nature as a place for, uh, that endorses its comfortable and relaxing attitudes excluding the truth about, about labour which went into creating those fruit trees in the first place. In other words, legitimising the power of the, of the French bourgeoisie over the French proletariat. Um, you know, uh, and uh, in that way, uh, Renoir becomes part of the ideology uh, uh, which is being imposed upon us by our Western culture. Uh, and we need to liberate the, uh, the oppressed, the victim, from beneath this ideology. And the victim, of course, will turn out to be whoever uh, the current obsession is, probably um, working class women in this particular case. So, you know, when you start thinking like that, nothing seems to be uh, um, not as it seems. Everything that is as though there's a reality behind everything and that reality is the power that people exercise over each other and that's why beauty is a kind of deception uh, because it's always concealing those real relations between people in, in which one class or one person or one group has dominion over another but of course for the impressionist painters uh, that's all a nonsense for them seeming is everything the, uh, uh, what Renoir was trying to do in that painting is to remind you of something which you would otherwise not notice, namely that the world does seem in a certain way to you and that's what it really, really is. Uh, the, the, in other words, how it comes across to you in your immediate perception when you stop all the instrumental reasoning, forget all the powers and the, uh, and the projects and just look. But uh, because of this obsession with power, people do wipe away the face of the world so that the way things seem is no longer available to us. Uh, and that means that beauty is no longer available to us either. Here's an example of uh, uh, some of the uh, work of art, if you can call it that, uh, which is um, created by two brothers. Uh, it's quite um, normal now in the products of the British art schools for people to do joint works of art like this, you know, because that way you get, a re get rid of the romantic idea of the artistic genius who's got something special to say. You know, you've got, you're doing it together with someone else. And of course the purpose in this case is to, um, whatever the purpose is, I mean the purpose is to make the human body repulsive into a kind of uh, liquid standing um, in, in these childish Mary Jane shoes and uh, um, with all the parts deformed, penis instead of nose and things like that. Um, you know, what, what its point is, is of course can only be understood if you realise that, that uh, these boys were brought up in a, an art school which tell, tells them that the purpose of art is not to beautify life, not, in no way to replace the sacred moments that religion uh, uh, might have given us. 
in no way to give you a sense of the meaningfulness of things, but on the contrary, to deconstruct well, um, those things, to show that life is essentially meaningless. And you can the best do this by taking the human body uh, uh, and making it repulsive. Uh, and of course, we all know of Tracy Emin's famous bed, um, last changed hands at two million pounds, uh, in which she uh, presented well, her bed. Um, after she had got out of it, of course, um, uh, and with all the debris of her, her night's dissipation lying on the carpet around it. Um, and there it is. Uh, and it's in the Tate Modern Gallery now, uh, its permanent resting place. Uh, although, of course, those sheets are going to rot away quicker than most sheets do. <laughs> uh, I want to just contrast it uh, I mean, uh, with, with um, another bed, which I, I, I mentioned this in the film that I, I made about this. This is Delacroix's bed. Delacroix, um, as you know, is a, a great French painter from the Romantic period, uh, who um, was also a highly learned and interested uh, cultural figure. Um, perhaps one of the, you know, one of the greatest of, uh, of 19th century cultural figures in France. So here, here is his bed. This isn't an actual bed, of course, this is a painting of a bed. Uh, and in painting it, he has tried to as it were, transfer into the bed some of his sense of the value of lying in it uh, and being the thing that was in it, uh, and also what it meant to wrestle with the sheets in that way. Uh, and if you comparison, a, a comparison of these two does help you, I think, to understand a little bit about what's gone wrong with the, with the archdate. Tracy Emin's bed, it presents itself, but obviously nothing beyond itself. It just is there. De Delacroix's bed presents something other than itself. Uh, it's, it's a life that's been translated into those fabrics a perpetuation in another form of a spiritual wrestling which we know from Delacroix's life and his other paintings that that wrestling with fabric and with the with the uh, the reality the flexibility of this world and the attempt to impose upon it a, a meaningful human form a, 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 if you like a um, a testimony to the spiritual life uh, with which we invest all the objects that we're in touch with or at least which he did so he was looking for a kind of harmony, uh, order, even a kind of redemption in the shape of those, sheet, those sheets. As he's searching for the trace left in them by the spirit, which will be a meaning beyond the present moment. So here we're talking about a difference between the attempt to represent life, which, uh, which is also a transfiguration of life into something, into a permanent record of the spirit, and the mere debris of a life. And I think this is something that, um, that once you see it, you realize that, that, uh, that only the first of those is a genuine artistic activity. However, we, we, we've um, entered this period in our history where, where ugliness has become a kind of cult. But not ugliness as such, but more transgressive ugliness, um, like the, those uh, um, melted together human figures of the Chapman brothers. Uh, it's an ugliness that pollutes or negates some familiar ideal or value. Now, transgression I I is something which also has a certain appeal. 
you know, uh, especially to, uh, obviously to younger people. Uh, it, it's uh, an act of self-affirmation that frees itself from judgment. Uh, it, it says, you know, the, the, the transgressive gesture is one that says, I don't actually care whether you judge me or not. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to affirm myself against your judgment. Uh, and that is in itself a liberation. Uh, so people, and I think we've seen this uh, in every sphere of human endeavor since the, the 1960s, uh, the, the assumption of a freedom to offend the freedom to annihilate other people's uh, vision of what matters and to show that the values by which other people live don't count for you. Uh, and uh, that's uh, something, a stage which uh, obviously all of us have to go through at certain points in our lives. We have to fight against our parents, uh, fight against uh, institutions, fight against the people who seem to be um, preventing us from being what we truly are and going out into the world and claiming it as our own. And in the normal run of things, that's not a, a particularly bad thing to do. Um, because, after all, once you're out there in the, uh, in the big world, feeling the winds of, uh, of, um, uh, of change around you, you realize that you are actually on your own, uh, and it was a ter terrible mistake to be so offensive to the pe <laughs> people you need. Uh, and, and gradually, you work your way back to them, uh, uh, you reassume possession of them and they of you, and you're reconciled and forgiven, like, uh, as in the famous par parable of the prodigal son. So, the, the, so there's a paradox in this position of, of assuming a freedom to offend. It's only because other people's values count for you that you can be exhilarated by defying them or disavowing their ideals and so on. And, uh, but nevertheless, this is certainly what artists at a certain stage did. Now, de Kooning was, a, I guess, a paradigm of this. Um, he's an artist who, I think, has largely been seen through now, um, but in, except in America. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and the reason why he has not been seen through in America is a lot of money has been spent on his pictures. Uh, uh, so that uh, museums, art critics uh, and private owners conspire together to make sure that they're not going to lose that two million dollars that they spent on this. Uh, you know, if you can keep the, the, the values up, uh, your museum is still worth what, uh, what, the, um, what you've invested in it. No, but this is, this is just called Woman and it's his representation of, the, uh, of what a woman fundamentally is. You know, uh, all those ideals of, of womanhood which you might have um, entertained in your uh, self-deceiving moments uh, are uh, of no as nothing compared with this representation. Um, here is another instance of this kind of uh, way of approaching our ideals. Uh, Rusalka, uh, some of you may know this great opera by Dvorak, um, which tells the, the famous story of Ondine, the, the water nymph, Rusalka in, in Czech, um, who, who falls in love with a, uh, with a, a mortal. Uh, and it's a beautiful romantic story, uh, uh, not only about the mystery of, of woman, but also about the importance uh, of, of chastity and purity in, in preparing uh, a woman for, for love and the danger in which she is put by that. And of course this is symbolized by the fact that there she is living in the water. If she comes out of it, 
you know, is that the end of her? Um, and if she uh, tempts the, the mortal into the water, is that the end of him, etc. So this story has been told many, many times, uh, but never as well as by Dvorak. Uh, and this is the production that Covent Garden, uh, London's opera, made of, the, of that opera in which Rusalka, the water nymph, uh, the, the pure water nymph who, who dreams of, a, of an erotic relation which no water nymph is allowed, um, turns into, uh, is turned into a prostitute and the water is, in, is the bath in which she is um, uh, lying uh, expecting the stream of lovers of which, um, to, who, to whom, for, for reasons that can't be explained, she sings an aria to the, to the moon. Um, so, uh, now that's, that's a very ordinary occurrence in, in opera productions today. Uh, uh, that's simply one example. Um, the, the idea in so many opera producers' mind, when you have a, a romantic fairy tale like that, is of course to desecrate it as, uh, if you can, uh, and also bring in sex, violence, all the usual stuff, in order that um, that audience that you've got trapped there, audience of ordinary, decent, middle-class people who spent a couple of hundred dollars for the ticket, you know, that you can really give them a hard time. You're never going to get them there in any other way, uh, because they came for this beautiful romantic legend. Uh, and um, they won't come again, but you've got them anyway for a couple of hours. <laughs> so, and this is the way in which uh, opera productions tend to go now. Right, so uh, why did all this come about? Uh, and I think we can't understand it, this, this great movement to desecrate works of art like that, if we don't um, attend a little bit to the phenomenon of kitsch and the distrust of beauty that arose because of kitsch. Um, now, um, in the, the Romantic movement, which arose in the, as you know, in the end of the 18th century and dominated all of, of art uh, through the 19th century, the, in the Romantic movement, uh, there was a kind of movement away from beauty anyway, the, 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 home, the homely sort of beauties that appeal to, to ordinary people which don't seem to threaten them and so on. There was a, a movement towards the sublime, presenting uh, great tragedies rather than, uh, the, than sweet fairy tales, uh, emphasizing the difficulties of human life. Uh, the difficulty of emerging from a life of oppression and so on. And we have many great works of romantic art which focus on, on these fairly negative aspects uh, of the human condition, uh, but trying to find beauty in them nevertheless. All this epitomized in uh, Baudelaire's famous poem to beauty, which I recommend you to, to read in uh, Fleur du Mal. So uh, th there was a movement away from the beautiful, and at the same time, a fear uh, of the sweetness that beauty can bring into our lives. Isn't there a kind of deception involved in that? If life really is as, as bad as we all know it to be, uh, isn't art deceiving us by trying to make us uh, accept it and, f and find uh, um, sweetness and consolation in it? Maybe there is no sweetness and consolation. Maybe art should have another role, that of showing the truth to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to, um, to perceive it. 
uh, and that if, if art concentrates on beauty, isn't it just going to degenerate into uh, a, a form of lying or form of faking things? Um, and um, I'll, I'll give you a contrast here between two Venuses. Everybody knows Botticelli's Venus, who's so detached from the world. Um, uh, and I'm contrasting with a Venus by Bouguereau, Bouguereau being the famous salon painter of the, uh, of the 19th century in France, who, who was a wonderfully accomplished painter in the style of Ingres, but a, qu a question mark inevitably um, is uh, placed over him uh, because of this uh, sweetness and, uh, and uh, uh, gentleness uh, and also the, the perfection of everything he did, which seemed to many people to be a kind of lying. And Baudelaire expressly defended Manet against Bouguereau because Manet was telling us, showing us life as it is, uh, without any of this uh, uh, cloying sweetness. So um, now um, you all know Botticelli's Venus, not a, a, an easy way to show it, but uh, in that face, um, you see a particular conception uh, of what the erotic is. Uh, Botticelli was a, a Platonist um, who believed, as Plato did, that, that beauty is an object of desire, but it's also uh, a gateway to the transcendental. That, that uh, you, you understand what beauty really is if, if you follow through that gateway leave behind your earthly desires uh, and unite with the spiritual condition from which um, they originally spring. Uh, and um, this face for him was not an object of sexual desire, but an object of a sexual desire that had been transcended. It, it, uh, she was Simonetta Vespucci, who was mistress of his, of his prince, Lorenzo da Medici, and therefore unobtainable anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, 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 the thought is, you know, this Venus is the symbol of the erotic as Plato conceived it, something to be transcended into the spiritual. Uh, Bouhaud's birth of Venus, as you see, it's all perfection of form and everything, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, th you know, there, there she is, uh, sniffing her freshly shaven armpit, <laughs> wa waiting, waiting for the the lover who's going to uh, come through the bathroom door and uh, obviously she'll have to get rid of the company meanwhile. <laughs> but she's so, you know, so perfectly, um, uh, uh, he was a great master of colour and form and everything, but somehow the sentiment is, is fake. It, it isn't a real Venus. It, it, this, is gen this is sexuality in its ordinary uh, vulgar form without any of that attempt to show the meaning of it uh, and the, its uh, reflection in the transcendental. Uh, this is uh, something just so uh, you realize that desecration takes many forms, um, <coughs> but uh, if we worry about kitsch, which, which all painters and all artists today do, what, what do we do about it? There's two ways of dealing with it, roughly. First is to try and find a way of producing real art that's not kitsch. And that's the really hard thing to do. Something that, producing art that doesn't have this fake uh, character. It isn't just uh, childish and, uh, and uh, Christmas 
uh, like, you know, it isn't a Christmas decoration. Um, or you can do what Jeff Koons does, which is produce something which is so obviously kitsch that nobody could ever ac accuse you of it. Uh, <laughs> and he said, you know, uh, of course, I, you know, he's saying, of course I, this, is, this is kitsch, but it's such obvious kitsch that, that I must be making another and deeper point by putting it there. Uh, nobody's ever discovered what that deeper point is. <laughs> But uh, there it is, uh, desecrating a beautiful classical facade, uh, and um, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably for uh, for many years to come. Right. So the causes of all this go, uh, this situation which we find ourselves go go deep. Uh, we we have acquired this distrust of beauty, or many people have. Many artists have acquired the distrust of beauty, because. It is an invitation into realms that have been mined. You know, that, that, that there are traps here. Uh, you might fall into the trap of Bougarou. Uh, however beautiful your human figures, they turn out in the end uh, just to be uh, standard Christmas card porn. Uh, but, uh, or, or something like that. The, the, the reality uh, slips away from you and, uh, and it, you're left with just with this, this fake. So uh, people, artists have come to distrust beauty, and I think you're, you all know this from modern cinema for, uh, and much modern music as well, that there is uh, an attempt often to show that you're a genuine artist by producing something that nobody could possibly like. <laughs> uh, uh, because then, then you, must, you, you must be serious. Uh, and there are consolations also of ugliness, as we've seen, the consolations of, uh, of showing that, that in some way life doesn't matter anyway. Uh, that's, what, that's the meaning of Chap that Chapman Brothers sculpture. Um, life is simply a, a nothingness. We happen to have been born, uh, we will die and, and decay and disappear, and so what? Uh, and there's a charm in that kind of view, a charm which I, I call the charm of disenchantment. Um, that being disenchanted with things gives you a kind of glamour. You know, if you go around a room of people who are, who, who are, are going ooh and ah uh, in, with this kind of fake enchantment about kitsch, then your being disenchanted gives you a kind of distinction. And I think many artists, uh, uh, as it were, uh, aspire to that distinction. Of, of not being taken in by anything, so to speak, and not, not being uh, uh, dupes to the surrounding culture and the surrounding values. Uh, and this, this uh, uh, added to this, there is a desire perhaps to desecrate those, those values as well, like putting graffiti on things um, or, or a moustache on the Mona Lisa etc. And I think when, when the, uh, that moustache was first put on the Mona Lisa by Marcel Duchamp, you know, uh, you could see what he was doing. He was saying, yes, 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 but I've, we've gone beyond that. That's all nonsense. Uh, you, you might be taken in by that, but I'm not. Um, but essentially, since, ever since that gesture, which was made a hundred years ago, uh, the majority of art that we've come across, at least from the art schools, has been a matter of putting another moustache on the Mona Lisa. And, uh, and of course, uh, the, the question automatically arises as to whether, whether it's, there's any point in doing it twice, uh, let alone a thousand times. So, but the, the thought behind all this is that we've asked too much of art. We've asked it to, 
to be a religion substitute, to be the light from and the window onto the transcendental. Uh, and if it disappoints us in that, uh, then we, beget, uh, we, we start becoming, in a certain way, angry with it. Uh, disappointment turns to repudiation. Uh, but so what is the mi mission of art then? Uh, is there a mission that we can still maintain? Now, I, I believe that we all do have a need for redemption. I don't, I don't mean that necessarily in the religious sense. I mean that we need uh, our actions, uh, our gestures, our plans and projects to have uh, a fulfillment of some kind, to lift us out of the day-to-day -day appetites that otherwise swallow us. Uh, and all our actions aim towards this. They aim beyond themselves to a point of rest in which we can look back and endorse what we have done. And this is so obviously the case with human relations, especially love relations, but it's there in all our lives. Uh, and a life without this and without ideals gets tired of itself. Uh, and when people uh, set out on the path of transgression, it's partly because they've become disappointed with the possibility of actually achieving this sort of redemption. But where then, what, where then does beauty fit into it, into this, and what can it actually do by way of satisfying this desire? I, I have argued, and I, I, I just want to sketch the argument again, that the search for beauty is, is the search for home, for a place where you can be at home with yourself and with others, but in particular where you belong. Uh, you know, uh, it's going back to that Renoir painting, of, which was a painting of a landscape as a thing that we belong to. Uh, and being at home means being at home with yourself, and that means seeing yourself in some way as another, as another person, uh, seeing yourself from outside, not just this selfish, self-involved thing that you uh, are familiar with when you wake up in the morning, but that other thing that you were when you went to bed you know, uh, uh, and um, had been spent a day with other people. And you, you want to be at home with what you find. And I think this search for being at home does not start with high art, nor does it end there. And one of the reasons why people have become so confused about beauty is because they have constantly taken their examples from the realm of high art, those, those great and difficult things like Botticelli's Venus, you know, which, uh, which you have to think about for an awful long time before you know what it really means. Um, you know, high art uh, challenges us in the deepest parts of our being, and um, maybe we just get turned off by it. We, think we feel we can't live up to it, so let's, uh, let's live in another way. But uh, that's not where the search for beauty be, uh, begins, nor is it where it ends. I, I think it begins and, in the end, ends with in everyday life. Uh, and people misconceive aesthetics when they see it merely as the realm of beauty, as though that's all we were ever thinking about. When we go around the world, uh, you know, going around our world making aesthetic judgments, it's all, yes, that's beautiful, no, that's ugly, etc. That's not the way we behave at all. Um, we actually uh, make completely different kinds of judgments. We talk about uh, you know, whether something fits in, whether it's graceful, uh, whether that would be the right way to go forward. Is this does this colour you know, uh, fit with that colour and so on? And I think people take revenge on beauty because they don't see that there's something more important without which there can be no revenge. 
And that more important thing is just the, our instinct to get things right, to make things fit in and harmonize. And this is where uh, the aesthetic judgment is a fundamental part of our everyday lives. We're making it all the time. Uh, now, I'm not a natty dresser, but even I had the question whether this tie goes with that jacket. Probably doesn't. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, it, it, it occupied me for a certain amount of time. Uh, and it was part of my attempt to fit in and harmonize, and also to fit in to the, this occasion, this occasion when I'm giving you uh, a public lecture and so on. Uh, uh, you could put this, however, in a much more pretentious philosophical way by saying that when we do this, we're trying to realize ourselves as subjects in the realm of objects. That's the language that Hegel uh, and his followers would use. It's, a, it's a, okay, it's a slightly tough language, but you see what, what, it, what it means? That we are free beings, we are subjects who have an inner life, but that inner life is not meaningful to us if we cannot in some way make it into a, an outward reality, uh, among, among other outward realities. And we're always, in all our gestures, we're trying to achieve that, to become something real and part of things, to belong, in other words. So this realization is something that goes on all the time and all rational beings are engaged in it. Uh, and children know about this already. <coughs> in these two little girls, you see um, what Wittgenstein would call the natural expression of aesthetic judgment. Uh, th there they are, trying to fit things in the right place on the table. Um, they're not thinking, saying to themselves, is this beautiful, is this ugly, or anything like that, uh, uh, sublime, whatever. Those, those words are not part of their vocabulary, probably, but they are asking themselves the question, is this right? Am I getting it right? Or should it be a little bit more to the left? Um, etc. Uh, and you can see in the intent expression here something that only human beings manifest. No animals manifest this sense of the rightness and wrongness of things because they're not reasoning instrumentally. You see, they've got completely beyond the whole idea of the function of these things. That they're trying to fit things together so they look right and so that the guests will find that they look right too. Um, and that's the beginnings of the aesthetic uh, attitude. But, uh, so we know this as well. Um, we know, first of all, that our world, we don't accept it simply as a, a, as a thing out there, a, a, an assembly of objects. We try and adorn it uh, and fit it to ourselves and us to it. And we're, we're always aware of the distinction between things standing out and fitting in. Sometimes it's right for them to stand out, sometimes it's wrong. Uh, um, and fitting in is one of the most important uh, aspects of our life in every sphere of human endeavor. Uh, and we all have this need to be part of something greater than ourselves. Uh, and uh, this is something that uh, happens to us all day long, that, that we know that we're part of something greater, and we know that we are either fitting in or not fitting in. And, uh, and there's obviously there's a distinction between looking right and being right, but one of the important uh, uh, features of the aesthetic is that that distinction gets collapsed. If you look back at the two children, there isn't a distinction there between the plate being in the right place and looking in the right place. Being and seeming have come together, 
and that's perhaps something that, that is really important for us, to live in a world where every now and then being and seeming coincide so that nothing, as it were, deceives us anymore. Uh, and I think this is part of the great the social significance of the aesthetic. And we live in a world which ha has been in many ways uglified and it's a world that we want to redeem so that, so that we're part of it once again and our fulfilment is, as it were, reflected back to us from all the things that we encounter. Uh, and um, that's really part of what I mean by redemption and that is the function of the aesthetic. And you can, well, this search for getting things right uh, is a very, it's an all-pervasive thing. You can, no matter what circumstances you're in, even if you're living in a trailer park, you see, you can do things right. Um, you go to your local timber merchant and buy the Georgian windows to replace the uh, rubbish that you would otherwise be there, have a little cornice and, and so on. Uh, and you can, even if there's a lot of money involved, you can get things totally wrong. Um, and this, this is a, a, a part of London. Um, to, uh, and as you can see, there's, uh, someone's made a mistake here. Uh, there's another example of a few mis a London mistakes, but here is uh, getting it right. This is a, uh, just an ordinary Victorian street in London. Somebody's built a bridge across it to for so two buildings communicate. But uh, this is a totally different thing, although there's lots of different buildings there, they all harmonise. They harmonise because they're standing along a street. They're all built of vertical components which match each other. Um, uh, classical uh, details, cornice and a string course uh, and uh, pilasters and so on. Uh, and here's an example of a modern uh, uh, town centre, the centre of Reading, built, built n unlike this, which is built entirely out of, out of verticals, this is built entirely out of horizontals. Uh, and one of the most important differences between them is that everybody wants to live here uh, <laughs> and nobody wants to live here <coughs> and, and nobody does live there. Uh, the, the centre of Reading was destroyed completely by this development and it's standing empty and vandalised uh, and as you see uh, covered in graffiti. Uh, this emphasis on the horizontal was originally of course a very aesthetic thing. The modernist aesthetic exemplified in this interior is entirely uh, designed in that way. And you can see that yes that is a kind of aesthetic ideal Nobody, I'm sure, has ever sat in this room, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, you, you can see that, you know, that, that, that it has aesthetic thoughts behind it. Um, uh, and unlike this, which, um, uh, uh, but, but the modernists, of course, that, uh, uh, were, uh, were in reaction against this, all this Victorian clutter, which again is, uh, is something that most people would find extremely difficult to live with now. Um, but here is an example of a rather perfected modernist interior, which is Wittgenstein's house in Vienna, which he designed for his sister. Uh, and Wittgenstein, like me, ha had the sense that, that um, architecture ultimately uh, must get the vertical emphasis right and must make verticals uh, stand in parallel to each other, and it's the sense of detail that matters. This is not my uh, preferred form of architecture, but you can see the aesthetic instinct at work in everything in this building. He, he designed it for his sister, uh, who never lived in it, 
um, and it ended up as the embassy of a communist country, where, for which it is wonderfully suited. Um, uh, here, here is, <coughs> this is um, uh, an example of what architects really can do, of course, when, they, when it comes to making corners. This is the corner of a church in Rome by Pietro da Cortona, where you see when you have the sense of detail and the classical idiom and this de desire to fit things together, how a building comes alive uh, and, and captures the light of the sun uh, and incorporates that light into itself, ma makes it part of its own spirit, so to speak. So even in architecture, the human spirit finds its embodiment. Uh, and just in conclusion then, um, those examples are really just sort of taken from, from the air, really, but they're meant to, to uh, emphasize that, that, uh, that the place of uh, aesthetic judgment, of our desire to get things right, that, that the place of that in, in our ordinary everyday life and in our en enterprise as builders and, and dwellers, uh, people who settle down. We know that we are free beings, but we also know that free freedom demands recognition. This is something that Hegel emphasized, uh, and, and it, it has to be re-expressed ev for every generation. We're not truly free until others recognize that we are free and grant us the space to be free in, uh, and then that means we're in a, in a relations of mutuality with each other. Our freedom is, my freedom is always, as it were, rubbing up against the edge of your freedom. And that, uh, that boundary between us is the public world where we both belong. And it's in shaping that boundary between us that the aesthetic, uh, the aesthetic sense, the sense of aesthetic judgment is so important. That's where, in our search for recognition we, uh, from each other, we attempt to, to be graceful towards each other uh, and to bring each other to, to our side. I bring you to my side, you bring me to your side, so that the, the boundary where we coincide is mutually acceptable. And this, is, this, is, this which you might reasonably call grace, is a matter of harmony and, and fitting in. And of course it can't be achieved without the habit of giving and receiving. I give way to you, you give way to me, I, I offer you things and you receive them and so on. And this is what the public world ideally should be and that kind of giving and receiving of things is what should be embodied in our ideal forms of architecture as it is embodied in this. And on that note, I think I'm going to stop and leave it to you to ask questions. Thank you. Okay, so the question is that I compared Botticelli's Venus with Bujol's Venus uh, and po pointed out that although um, Bujol doesn't achieve that transcendental sense of the erotic, uh, he nevertheless is a highly competent painter 
with a grasp of the human form and, and a grasp of colour and composition. Uh, there's nothing, there's no, no way he can be faulted from the technical point of view. Uh, but the question is, might there not be works of art which, where, the, where the fault is so great that, that it isn't even a competitor for art or something like that? Uh, yeah, of course, there, is, there are totally incompetent painters as well. Uh, if you're totally incompetent, though, the best way forward is to disguise it by pretending to be a modernist. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think, I think de Kooning is a very good example of this. He never could paint. He couldn't draw, he couldn't paint, uh, and, uh, but he could disguise the fact by making it look as though he had done all that and he'd got through to the other side. Uh, and I think there, you know, these are difficult questions. So in all art forms, there's a distinction between technical accomplishment and real, really having something to say. You know, I think that's really what people would say about Bouhaut. Of course he was accomplished, but did he have anything to say? You know, uh, uh, and you see this, if you compare, say, Bach with Vivaldi. Uh, Vivaldi was, Bach greatly admired Vivaldi because of his accomplishment. But, you know, we'd, we'd surely want to say, yes, that's all true, but did he have anything to say compared with what Bach was saying? You know? Yeah, we, well, I'll ask you to uh, speak your question into the microphone. Uh, thank you. It seems very easy to take something that is pleasing to the eye, say Aphrodite or David, and transfigure it into a form of high art. What would you say about something such as a crucifixion, which is in normal life very ugly, mm. but yet it's been transformed time and time again into higher? Does, how does that happen? This is. Um a very interesting question. Um, through, throughout history, art has dealt with uh, these extremely painful things uh, uh, and with human suffering. You know, Greek tragedy was um, focused on this, uh, and the, the Greeks were aware that actually art is one of the few areas where we are able to deal with suffering. The, the Greek tragedy shows human suffering, but also shows something like a transcendence of it, you know, that, that, that it's incorporated into the life of the, uh, of the tragic hero uh, and in some way re redeemed by that. Uh, and, um, of course, in, in the Christian tradition, the, the, the redemption of suffering is there on the cross itself. So uh, uh, that's surely the normal the normal theme of a crucifixion. Of course the suffering is there, but there is also the redemption achieved through it. Some, if it was just suffering, uh, with no sense that anything is achieved by it, then there is a real question. And Goya's uh, um, etchings of the uh, 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 of Civil War in Spain, uh, well, uh, Napoleonic Wars in, in Spain, you, you all recall of the uh, cor mutilated corpses um, stuck on trees and so on, where, where all you see is suffering with no, for no purpose, a purposeless suffering. That is very questionable as art. It's fact, it, it, he has, he's making a mess, he's, he's, uh, has a message, but it is not the normal message that you, you expect art to uh, convey. Hello? Okay. Yeah. And just a uh, question you mentioned uh, earlier in the uh, 
lecture uh, talked the problem of uh, utilitarianism and saturating modern culture. Just a question. If uh, everything has a purpose in life, then what's, why do mosquitoes exist, a platypus, or a, other absurd creatures like that? Uh, what's the purpose of a platypus? <laughs> um, I think um, that, that's an interesting question, but it, I was really talking about human life, that we have purposes. I don't think we have a purpose for a platypus, that's true. Uh, um, but we, you know, our purposes, nevertheless, they govern what we do and they give us reasons for doing it. You know, I, I have a, a reason for standing here because I've got a purpose, which is to get through to the end of the discussion period, etc. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, but the question is then, given that that purpose governs my reasoning as to what I should be doing now, what governs my reasoning as to whether I have that, have that purpose? Is that a right purpose to have? And we all have that question too. You know, we have questions about our means, but questions about our ends. Uh, and um, learning to choose the right end is part of education just as much as choosing the right means. Uh, and classical philosophers made a lot of this distinction. Aristotle distinguished virtue, which is knowledge of the ends, from, from skill, which is knowledge of the means for achieving them. And, uh, although that's simple, uh, um, I mean, he, what he said was more complex than that, but you, know, you can get the point. And I think that it's something that we all recognize as soon as it's pointed out. Uh, and then you realize that once you see things in that way, that aesthetic judgment has to do with getting the ends right and not the, the means. Yes, uh, this topic of uh, beauty and art, uh, it seems to me that it's a, it's a search, kind of like a, a search for, uh, kind of like you take an ex existential approach and search for the transcendent that doesn't tire itself out. So in a way, it's kind of like a theological anthropological approach. Mm. Would you agree with that, or how would you analyze it? Well, certainly it's one part of the artistic enterprise, uh, or it has been, uh, um, part of the, of the artistic enterprise to try and find in the empirical world in which we live the marks of the transcendental and to bring them out, so to speak, and, and show them. Uh, it, whether a, it, a, an artist doesn't have to believe in God or the afterlife to, be, to do this. Uh, you know, this is for instance, Wagner in Tristan and Isolde is trying to, sh to extract from the experience of erotic love this sense of the transcendental as being the redemption of love as well. Uh, and I think, or, and that's what, of course, what Botticelli was up to. And I, I think um, all poets have that, that at the back of their mind. Uh, and, but it, of course, not all exercise of aesthetic judgment is creating art on that level. That's why, I, I, at a certain stage, I went downhill to, to the world of children and showed that, nevertheless, even there, children are making these judgments, and it's absolutely fundamental to their own self-knowledge and the knowledge of how they fit into the community in, in which they live. So. Yeah, please. Uh, I'm 
Yeah, I appreciate that you showed the uh, Jeff Koons uh, piece. Um, Clement uh, Greenberg said that kitsch is, is art that has had all of its cultural relevancy removed from it so that it can be sold. Mm. And I think it's a curious thing that, that Koons, um, I, I recently went to a lecture by the head of the Institute of Classical Art and Architecture, and he is redesigning Jeff Koons' house in a completely classical style, mm. filled with great masters and not a single piece of modern art, mm. which tells me that Jeff Koons, what he's trying to say with his art is that he's trying to make money, mm. <laughs> and he makes a lot. Mm. Now, my question to that is, Clement Greenberg said, what's going to cure us of kitsch is the avant-garde. And so what happens when the avant-garde becomes kitsch? Well, um, the avant-garde, of course, was not immune from this disease of making things for sale. Uh, and indeed, Clement, Clement Greenberg when he wrote his famous essay on avant-garde and Kitsch, uh, was explicitly referring to, to Kooning as, uh, you know, as the, the art of the future, was very carefully buying up to Kooning's at uh, you know, $1,000 a time. Uh, and within a few years, he was rich too, because he, everybody believed him. And I think um, it's, one of the, it's one of the great problems of art, general, of visual art, that it, that it uh, consists of physical objects that can be owned. Um, poetry and, and music are not subject in quite the same way to this de deformation. There isn't an, a market in, in, uh, in symphonies like there is a market in, in uh, uh, sculptures because nobody can own them. Uh, and so the, the, the kitsch disease, interestingly, both the kitsch disease and the modernist disease have been a very short-lived in, in those, uh, in music and literature. And if you look, at, look today, you know, the novel is a very flourishing art form in both my country and this one. Uh, and it's, it contains some incredibly good stuff. Uh, uh, and you know, there may be bits of kitsch here and there, but when people see that it's kitsch, they say, well, okay, I'll go on to the next book. Uh, so it's, um, it has a lot to do with, the, with ownership. The, uh, on the issue of Jeff Koons's house, uh, this is not an unusual thing. Uh, the architects who are most responsible for desecrating London, that's Richard Rogers, uh, Norman Foster. They both live in Georgian houses in protected villages, uh, you know, uh, where they wouldn't allow a single intrusion of the stuff that they build. <laughs> so you mentioned that uh, aesthetics is about getting the end right, mm. and that made me made me think of some liberal political uh, theory, both classical. Uh, from say Hobbes on, uh, and also more modern Mill, uh, Marcus Wells, um, and it seems like essential to that, uh, both strands of liberal theory, is a, uh, a fundamental belief that there are no right ends. And I'm wondering if, two question, if art is safe for democracy, and uh, how you could um, convince maybe a more extreme liberal that aesthetics is really possible. Mm. 
Well, that's a, those are difficult questions. Um, whether art is safe for democracy, I don't know, but, uh, um, you know, uh, art is not safe from democracy uh, um, because people have terrible taste. Uh, and uh, there is, uh, you know, an, an artistic culture, you might want to say, in the end requires some kind of, artist, uh, some kind of aristocratic inheritance, you know, that people are um, embellishing the world in order to represent their, their own power and, and social superiority and so on. All the great periods of, of, um, of architecture and, and painting have been like that. Um, but uh, we don't want to be, we don't, we don't want to believe that because we know that democracy is here to stay um, and there, there is a real problem then as to how one secures aesthetic values uh, uh, while allowing everybody the freedom that they naturally uh, assume to have aesthetic values of their own. Uh, the normal response to this is to say, well, that, that we still have education and the purpose of education is to get people to examine their own values, to come to some kind of coordination or some consensus. Uh, and we do that in the moral sphere. You know, the, the liberals, extreme liberals, uh, of course, I, you, let's put them on one side for a moment, but ordinary American liberals nevertheless believe that the moral sphere is one of consensus and people gradually, that they, they um, harmonize their, their, their actions and their beliefs and their judgments with each other because they know that the alternative is chaos. Uh, and uh, what is, that's what good manners are about. It's also what ordinary morality is about. Uh, so about those things, there is a consensus and there has to be one. Uh, the, uh, maybe something similar has to occur in the aesthetic sphere. It hasn't occurred everywhere in, a, in the building of American cities, it's undeniable. Uh, um, there's a kind of, there was a time though when, when it was there. If you look at, uh, at uh, <coughs> old New York, um, and look at the old photographs, or look at what remains of it in lower Manhattan, you will see an entirely consensual form of architecture emerging, uh, using uh, cast iron pillars, uh, cast iron pillars and pilasters and so on, and tin, molded tin cornices, uh, and um, brick facades built onto the road and, uh, and all the rest. Uh, and uh, it's utterly harmonious. And one result of this is, of course, that the uh, New York City fathers won't let it be pulled down. Uh, and unlike modern buildings, those buildings in Lower Manhattan change their use. You know, some uh, they are now most of them are residences. They have were warehouses. Um, modernist architecture doesn't change its use because it can't. It's built for a purpose. Uh, you know, so there are there are lessons to learn from all those things, uh, which um, which indicate that even liberals do every now and then want a consensus. Uh, and that in areas of, that really matter to us, areas of value, we, we work for that consensus. We don't impose it from above, like uh, as a dictator would, but nevertheless, we try, while respecting each other's freedom, to, uh, to share the boundary. And that's really what I was talking about.
you stressed the necessity of union art, and I was just wondering how important you think um, truth played in art, because um, oftentimes the truth is not beautiful, and I think we would all agree that it's important in a work of art, especially if you're trying to convey a robust message, like you said, as in mm. if art supposed to be successful. Yeah, well, this is um, that's a really important question. I, I think, again, I I in the case of art, uh, truth is integral to the whole enterprise. And that, of course, is partly what, what we don't like about kitsch. It's, it's a fake. It's pretending to an emotion that it's not really expressing. Um, that's obviously true of that Bouguereau painting of the birth of Venus. So it's pretending to a sublimity which isn't there. Uh, uh, and I think we're all very aware of this with, with the written word. Uh, it, it, when reading a poem, uh, you know, if, you, uh, if you came across the phrase in the poem, you know, she was the apple of his eye, you would say, oh God, cliche, that can't be right. This person isn't looking at what he isn't looking at the phenomenon and translating it properly into words, um, and I think that's one of the, the so the the, the the standard of truth is has to be always there, um, but what truth means is a very difficult thing. You know, Bouguereau would say, well, that you know, nothing is more truthful to the female body than what I've done. Tell me where I've gone wrong. Uh, and you want to say, okay, it's not that kind of truth, you know, it's something else, it's, you're not, it's not true to the human heart, you're faking this emotion or something like that. Uh, and then we take, when we get, move into more abstract things like music, you still want to say, uh, you know, uh, um, that, that there's a, a, a distinction between the, the truthful and the, uh, and the self-deceived or something. You know, uh, there's truth in Bruckner, self-deception in Mahler. You know, uh, you you want to say that isn't really true, but every note in Beethoven is true in some way. There's a, there's a truth to something, but you don't know. It's very difficult to to say just what that thing is to which it is true. But it's something like a a, a human heart that isn't deceiving itself. You know. Uh, but I don't know how, you know, the, I think this is one of the deepest problems in aesthetics that, we, that, this, that you've raised, that, that we know that truth has to be there, but it isn't scientific truth, it isn't a matter of facts or anything like that. It's another kind of truth, the kind of truth whereby we live. Um, when Christ said, I am the way, the truth and the life, I think he had that sort of truth in, in, in his mind too. Yes, I have the sense that um, until art returns somewhat to the sacred or at least the transcendent, it will remain this sort of trend toward ugliness. Um, I assume you probably agree with that on a certain level. My one question, though, is is there any evidence um, in the world of ordinary art, the world of profane commercial art or any other art, that we are turning back to beauty, or is it really just an accelerating slide? Mm. This is... a uh a, a real question, obviously. Um, all, all our art schools, in, uh, official art schools in Britain until recently, were devoted to producing versions of 
uh, Duchamp's urinal or, or Tracy Emin's bed. I mean, they are the same work of art anyway, in effect. Um, uh, uh, things which require no skill but only a concept. Uh, and, and concepts are wonderful in the mind of Kant or Newton, but in the mind of an uneducated art student, they're pointless. So, uh, but we ha there, is, there has been a growth of alternative art schools from below. This is wonderful. Jacob Collins in New York and uh, the Classical Art College. And um, there's another one in Seattle. There's one in, uh, in Ventura where I was talking recently in the Lutheran University. Uh, all over America, these are springing up where people who really can paint and really can draw are teaching students to do life drawing, you know, to sit in front of a, a, a naked figure and, and get it right, and then incorporate that figure into a proper drama, uh, you know, uh, uh, and use it in, uh, in, in conveying some sense of the importance of human experience. And I think that it's creative art, uh, writing programs also can be, in, in a similar way, devoted to teaching students uh, just what the young lady was referring to how, to, how to say the truth, you know, how to find words which capture the truth and don't tell lies about it. Um, so, and I think in, in music too, people are moving away from the harshest form of sort of modernist uh, stuff too. So I think that one shouldn't despair. And in architecture, there's the new urbanism movement, which is trying to tell, to present a vision of architecture as a place as creating a place of settlement rather than just a functional object. Um, it, it, it depends on uh, us for it to work. Everybody in this, if everybody in this room thought that it really mattered, if beauty really matters and, uh, and that we have to uh, um, stand up for it in every place where it's threatened, I think a lot of this ugliness would go away. Thank you. Two questions, if I can be permitted. Uh, one, is there a necessarily uneasy relationship between beauty and irony? And uh, in the second place, is there going to be a sequel to your documentary? Um, well, uh, irony is a very interesting concept. I mean, it's a Greek concept. Um, of which Socrates made great play. Uh, um, uh, and it's to be distinguished from sarcasm. Uh, uh, much modern art, much desecrating art is sarcastic. As I say, it's taking something that people value and sneering at it. But irony isn't like that. It's taking something that people value and standing at a distance from it. And you can stand at a distance from something while still uh, creating beauty out of it. This is what Flaubert said he was doing in Madame Bovary. He called it l'ironie qui n'enlève rien au pathétique. Irony which, which takes nothing away from pathos. Uh, and I think that is an artistic ideal in a way. As for the, my documentary, I, um, I don't know whether there would ever be a sequel. Uh, it's, um, it depends upon hoodwinking, hoodwinking the um, left establishment to provide money by tel telling whatever lies are necessary. <laughs> um, 
Right. Um, I did mention photography when discussing Renoir's landscape, uh, just to point out that, of course, a painter of a landscape is not taking a photograph of it. Uh, and um, photography is open to abuse, uh, as, as I was saying, just the accumulation of uninterpreted images, uh, this ephemeralization of everything. Um, in, in cinema, of course, photography is a very important part of it. Uh, and um, the artistic use of photography is one of the most uh, interesting um, topics to explore. Uh, and um, I, I would say, just in response to your question, that, of course, it has to be guided by aesthetic judgment, just like everything else. Um, you don't just point a camera uh, at the person as he says his lines and then move on to the next person who says his lines and so on. Uh, you try and create out of the image something which comments upon those lines uh, and reveals the deeper meaning of them, if there is a deeper meaning. Uh, of course, cinema is, a, as you know, it's an art form in which the, the artistic use of it is rare. Uh, and these are specialised things, okay, people go to special art cinemas or they get them uh, on uh, CDs, you know, to, 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 perceive, to, to watch, say, the classical films like Renoir, the, the son of the painter, you know, um, all those old black and white films that we knew when we were, my generation knew when we were young. Um, and perhaps there isn't so much of that going on, a, a, a modern cinema is much more co concentrated not on the artist artistic use of the camera but on the creation of spectacular effects and that's another issue whether, whether an effect is really part of uh, an aesthetic uh, um, endeavor or whether it's a distraction from it and i think that goes back to the uh, question from ryan Schinkel about the crucifixions um, you know, that, uh, when in Mantegna's crucifixion, which has a sort, sort of serenity about it, he's not painting all that suffering for effect. On the contrary, the effect is, not, is what, precisely what he's trying to get away from. Uh, it, it, he wants to get to the meaning. Uh, and, um, you know, this, in cinema, it, the effects are so easy to make, to create, that maybe uh, the meaning gets lost. <laughs> 